0: What
1: do you think? I think we're dead meat. Real dead meat. You are dead meat! Go well, ahead and laugh, you guys. If I find a final process of business, a dead meat. Welcome to the Dead Meat Podcast, an extension of the YouTube channel Dead Meat. I'm James.
0: I'm Chelsea, and we're boyfriend and girlfriend, and we like to get scared together. Yeah, we do. Today we're going to do an episode that many people have requested, many people have been eagerly waiting for. We're going to talk about the final girl.
1: Yeah, the final girl trope.
0: Yes, and we're doing this one a little differently. We're going to do this one kind of like we do our movie reviews for movies that have come out recently or that are still in theaters where this isn't going to be edited it's going to be, if you're watching the video version, it's just the two videos of us side by side, which a lot of you have said you like better for some reason. So <laughs> sure. It's easier for me. So that's fine. Yeah. Uh, oh, I
1: forgot that I'm always going to be on camera. Exactly. Then, yeah. So. You can't
0: be fucking around while I'm talking and vice versa. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's if, if you're listening to it, there's not going to be much of a difference. But if you're watching, there might be points where I do feel like I need to cut stuff out. Because sometimes we'll go on tangents and, you know, if the episode's getting long, <laughs> <laughs> I'll cut it out. So there might be jump cuts if we kind of go off on, like, an off-topic
1: thing. Just deal with it. Yeah. It's because Chelsea's going to be getting surgery on her eyes, some LASIK surgery, so... Oh,
0: I, yeah. I don't have time to edit this.
1: So we don't have time to edit it. She's getting lasers in her eyes.
0: I'm getting lasers. That's why I have glasses on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You look
0: cute. <clears throat> Thank you. Yeah. But, yeah, if people like this better can do this let's know yeah it's let's easier. know okay
1: so today's episode is about a topic that has been prevalent on the kill count since its inception i have always since i pretty sure episode one have referenced the final girl mm-hmm. it is maybe the most well-known trope of horror movies
0: i think so
1: other than perhaps running victim is caught up to by walking killer Sure. (laughs) Like, that might be the only one that edges it out. But everyone knows what the final girl is, even people who uh, aren't diehard fans of the genre.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, you could ask anyone who isn't a horror fan to describe what the final girl is. And you would basically get, I think, the same description. They would say she's a strong girl. She's smart. Definitely smarter than her friends. (laughs) And she's the good girl, quote unquote.
1: Yeah, in most cases.
0: Yeah. And I I tried thinking of a way to structure this episode because it's kind of a nebulous concept. Like, how do you do an episode about a trope? Mm-hmm. And I thought, like, should we just talk about, you know, different final girls, like a list of them? Or do we talk about it in, like, a, you know, more of our own thoughts, like a TV tropes kind of way where we just kind of spitball our ideas about this concept? But I think what made more sense... And what seemed a little bit more substantial was talking about where this term came from, because the phrase final girl is from a specific place and a specific person, which I think a lot of people may not know. Yeah. And I thought it would make a lot more sense for this episode to kind of go through the essay that this term came from. And don't let that scare (laughs) you. It's not boring. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, And if you if you're interested in um you know possibly studying horror or if you're in college and your college offers a horror class, which many colleges do. Surprise at how many horror professors we've even met through the channel who yeah. have commented and say that they like our videos. <laughs> but this is this is one of the first things you're going to read is this essay called Her Body Himself by Carol Clover. It's from the book Men, Women and Chainsaws, which we've talked about before on the podcast. Um, it's awesome. It's it's this is horror through a gender studies lens, through a feminist lens. Don't let that scare you. Hold up,
1: hold up, hold up. Pump okay. the brakes,
0: because I know some of you are like, fuck, this episode's gonna be all about this whiny lady Fucking crying SJW. about <laughs> how horror is misogynist and how horror is offensive. That's not what this is. Nope. This Carol Clover. First of all, she rules. She's still a professor. If any of you have had her, please tell me stories about oh, her because be so cool. I adore her. She currently teaches Scandinavian Studies at UC Berkeley, <laughs> um, but she's also a film professor. And uh, she wrote this book because she, I, th- she says in the, in the foreword to this that a friend of hers took her to see Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and before that, she had explicitly avoided horror and and more like kind of low-grade horror like slasher exploitation because she you know she being a woman and you know being a feminist had the same kind of concept that I think a lot of of feminists do where you know they think oh I don't I have no interest in seeing an exploitation movie because it's so violent it's it's gratuitous violence against women Eh." but then she saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre and was like there's so much more to this, I think, than people realize. And then she got obsessed with slasher movies and has seen fucking every slasher movie ever. Yeah, Like, Carol Clover knows her shit. And specifically, she knows low-grade horror that other people dismiss as not being anything worth it studying
1: yeah and i know that just even at the as soon as we bring up gender studies or feminism or just anything having to even broach that subject a lot of people get squeamish yeah i'm asking you to just put your squeamishness on hold we're not this isn't a political podcast we're not going to be attacking anyone like this is not something like an ideological uh argument being made this is simply a critical lens through which we will temporarily be viewing these movies. Right. And it's okay if you disagree with some of the things it says or with all of the things it says, but give yourself a chance to maybe just expose yourself to thinking that you might not otherwise normally have. I try to do that all the time. I always try to to read things that I don't necessarily agree with just to have that exposure and to just open up your mind a little bit. And again, it's okay if you disagree and uh, like we're not even necessarily saying this is the, the right way to or view the only or way.
0: let's see. I have a quote from early on in her essay that I'll read that I think will kind of set the tone for how she feels about the the genre. So here we go. This is from the book's introduction. Horror's misogyny is a far more complicated matter than the bloodlust, quote-unquote, formula would have it. If I err in the chapters that follow on the side of complication, it is because I believe that the standard critique of horror as straightforward, sadistic misogyny itself needs not only a critical but political interrogation. Like others before me, I discovered that there are in horror moments and works of great humor, formal brilliance, political intelligence, psychological depth, and above all, a kind of kinky creativity that is simply not available in any other stripe of filmmaking. So that's yeah. kind of what this is going to be. Um, even if there are points where she's critical of the genre, as you know, we all should be. Like, yeah. You can love something and critique it.
1: Yeah, I think it's important. to. Uh, uh, that's why one of the, the things that I never like to do is give like the numerical rating of a movie, because I feel like it just strips away any nuance. I prefer to always say... Here are things I like about this. Here are things I don't. And rarely will you have a work of art where it's all one or the other. And I think that's a good challenge to yourself as a consumer of art and media is to always be like, okay, what's one thing? Even though I fucking love this movie, what's one thing that could be better that I didn't really care for? Even if it's just like a scene or a line. And similarly, if you fucking hate a movie, what's one thing they did well? You can always find one thing. Movies are collaborations of hundreds of people sometimes. And so like some of those people had to been doing a good job even if the the end product is something you really don't like.
0: Yeah. 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 That's fair. <laughs> something else about this book that I think is really important to know is that Carol Clover specifically is really interested in the male audiences relationship to horror because as she's seeing a horror movies, she's like Everyone in this theater is a young dude.
1: Yeah, and, and we should say this essay and this book come out in the early 90s. This is
0: 1992.
1: Okay, is when this collection yeah. comes out. So maybe this was written a little earlier, but... Re-
0: yeah, I think, you know, the essays, she's writing them over the course of years, and the book itself is released in 1992. So. Yeah,
1: so the genre is obviously very, very different. different. Uh,
0: I, I actually, when we get to the end, I have a... There's a really good essay that was on Medium, that is an update to the final girl theory that someone wrote and kind of gives examples of more modern movies to see if they hold up to her idea of how the genre presents women. And so I'll link to that because it addresses a lot of questions you might have concerning this and how dated some of this might feel.
1: So again, her perspective and her approach is going to be primarily with movies that came out in the eighties, which we would consider, I think most people would consider like the heyday of slasher films, which was, you know, all the sequels to all those big franchises that we all love, The Fry the 13s, The Nightmare on Elm Streets, all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. Her her book ends here. She specifies like explicitly the kinds of horror she's talking about, slasher specifically, in, in this chapter at least, beginning in nineteen seventy four with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and then becoming like fully coming into its own with Halloween in nineteen seventy eight. Which coincidentally are the two movies that came back to back in our, like important horror movies episode. Yeah, I think she kind of agrees with us where it's like these two. You don't really have one without the other, and you don't have either of them without Psycho. She talks a lot about Psycho in this mm-hmm. chapter too, and how Psycho kind of lays the groundwork. And it's not a slasher, but you don't have slasher movies. Yeah, without... it's like
1: a proto slasher. Sure. Yeah. But it
0: isn't like the classic. You got you know not Final Girl. It's not. It's not as. Uh, low grade like psychos art these were not considered (laughs) art when they came out yeah (laughs) right exactly
1: also i do have uh that same document up on my phone so okay just so you know yeah
0: so, yeah, so again, she is concerned mostly with the male audience's relationship to horror because, you know, back then and I still probably the case now if the demographics of your channel are any
1: Yeah, uh currently my demogra- my viewing demographics on Dead Meat are something like 85% male. Yeah. 15% female. Right. Which is
0: <laughs> And you know, crazy. who knows how analogous that is to the horror genre in general. Like, you know, we go to horror conventions, there's plenty of women and other genders there
1: but i would say that my channel probably is more representative of specifically the slasher audience just because that's what the kill count necessarily has to cover i'm never covering all these movies like The Conjuring, or other psychological supernatural horror movies, which I believe Carol Clover mentions in her book and other essays, does have a higher percentage of female audience.
0: Yes, there's a whole chapter about possession movies in this. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and for whatever reason, those movies tend to draw a higher uh, portion of female viewers. Right. Whereas The Slasher seems to be very male Right,
0: and so then, yeah, your audience on the channel is very much mostly male yeah although we see and appreciate you other genders
1: that's right we love love everyone
0: but so yeah that's important because you know going forward we're gonna be talking a lot about how men watch these movies Mm -hmm. so before you're like well what the fuck it's you know that's she's like i have to focus on this like why is it just men watching these so prominently
1: yeah, because if you think about it from like a, like a kind of scientific method point of view, there are roughly equal amounts of men and women on the earth, right. In the country, and so the default assumption for everything should be half and half. And when there is a discrepancy, it's 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 valid to question.
0: Why? Yes. And that discrepancy becomes extra interesting. And this is why the final girl chapter and this Her Body Himself chapter is a thing. This is basically the core of the essay. It's super weird when (laughs) a genre's majority audience is male, but all of the protagonists are female. Mm -hmm. For the most part, the protagonists are female. Yeah. The final girl. The final girl. So why... Her whole essay is basically wondering, well, why... Is this the case? Because most other movies, like at the time, Mm -hmm. I think now we're going through kind of a change where we do have more female main characters. But at the time, you have mostly male characters and everything else.
1: Yeah. And like compare that to the action genre, if you will, which probably also has a higher percentage of male audience than female. But those heroes are almost always men.
0: Yeah. Because this is what the age she's talking about the 80s yeah especially she, 80s she talks 80s about rambo movies. a little bit mm-hmm. in this chapter and um yeah so yeah super hyper masculine male stars
1: so yeah what is it about horror that makes it so the uh the usual is a primary female character mm-hmm. with which we identify with i don't know yeah We're that, gonna get into that it.
0: basically like why do men unquestioningly identify with a woman in these movies like mm-hmm. why is that a thing why is no one weirded out by it you know why why do we take it so for granted and no one really questions it we all just kind of accept yeah the final girl
1: mm-hmm. that's a thing
0: yeah and it's been a thing for decades now <laughs> so basically okay so she uses like we said before she uses psycho as kind of a forefather to these slashers and uh, this is a quote the killer is a psychotic product of a sick family but still recognizably human the victim is a beautiful, sexually active woman. The location is not home at a terrible place. Capital T, capital P, which is another trope that she talks about. I kind of skipped all that stuff because this would have been uh, four hours long. The weapon's something other than a gun. The attack is registered from the victim's point of view and comes with shocking suddenness. So yeah, we don't have slashers without Psycho. And that kind of is like... You know, she really starts to lay out this kind of checklist for what qualifies as a slasher in her mind. Victims in slashers are infamously sexually active teens. Both men and women are punished for their transgressions. Murder after sex is a genre Staple or
1: during sex or during in se- many of the Friday are, the Thirteenth movies. Oh, Kevin Bacon. <laughs> no, that's after.
0: Oh, is it? At, that's postcoital.
1: Yeah, during is in Friday the Thirteenth Part Two when Sandra and Jeff get speared together in a in a kill that's reminiscent of Bay of Blood. And I'm also thinking of Friday the Thirteenth uh Part Nine. Jason goes to hell. That fucking tent. People are having very explicit sex in a. Uh, pole comes in and splits the girl in half while she's on top of the dude.
0: Oh, fuck. I think yeah. she talks about part two in this that essay. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, again, that's another trope that I think people who don't even know horror know. Like, if yeah. you have sex, you die. I think maybe people know because of Scream. Scream, for sure. Yeah.
1: You do drugs, you drink, you have yeah. sex, you die.
0: Can never have sex.
1: <laughs> no, no. Big no-no! Randy.
0: However... Men are almost always killed quickly, and we barely see him react. They're also more often to die because of stupid mistakes, like trespassing or getting in the killer's way. Mm. Do you find that's often the case? Not- um. and again, this isn't always, it's just often. We get the men out of the way, and they're killed pretty quickly. Yeah. Whereas women get prolonged deaths. They're filmed at close range and it's graphic. They're also often killed just for the rage that their womanhood elicits. Think Norman Bates or other killers who are presented with gender confusion. And like Michael Myers, I thought of the beginning of Halloween because Michael Myers sees his sister... Topless. She's just had sex, I think, with her boyfriend.
1: Mm-hmm. And very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> they that's, like that's go upstairs right. and then like twenty seconds later he's like leaving, that buttoning was up great. his pants. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, see you later, babe. But
0: it's something about her sexuality that enrages him. It's just her being a woman and having boobs <laughs> is what makes him snap and kill her. This focus on women's terror and why women's deaths are so drawn out versus men's is more complicated than it seems on the surface, or so argues Clover. So I think a criticism that people often have of horror is that it just relishes in women's deaths. I think that's a problem people often have with horror, is that it feels very exploitive. Where, yeah, like men, you know, often... Again, I think over the years that's become less and less of the case. But when you think back to... I'm even thinking of... Um, text chainsaw massacre i think the guys died pretty quickly uh
1: so i can't speak for like the relative uh like drawn outness of deaths between genders because i i just can't think right now i have so much data in yeah that's hard to parse through it is something though that a lot of people comment on on the videos i believe i think there's only been a single movie i've covered with more female victims than male Usually there are there are more men than women killed, and oftentimes many more men mm-hmm. than women killed. And I see a lot of comments saying like that's sexist, that more men get killed oh, weird. or that like I thought women always got killed more in horror movies. Uh, why why is it always more men? Yeah. And so uh, I think part of that might be that a lot of the movies I cover come after this point of uh, this decade that she's studying. But another thing is that, I, and, and this is a question that I, I've been, I'll, I always wanted to address this because people are always like, why, why are there so many more men dying on your channel than, than women? And I think a big part of that is, is because in a lot of these movies where they want a higher body count, they just kill nameless people, oftentimes cops, security guards, other things like that. And those roles are always men.
0: She talks about this. Yeah. Clover talks a lot about how often the men in these movies are. They're cops, they're dads, they're, yeah, security guards. Mm -hmm. They're, yeah, and, you know, again, and especially when she's writing this, those are roles and jobs held by men. So it makes sense that there's more men dying in these kinds of movies because it's, Men holding these jobs where they're going to get killed by the murderer running around.
1: Yeah. And the the method by which I count kills on the kill count uh, may be doing a disservice to just or just might be uh, setting up a certain perspective because I count any kill that I see, even though you could argue these background characters and bodies that we see or these nameless cops and security guards, they're not really characters. You know, and I wonder what the difference would be in that gender breakdown if you just looked at actually substantial characters, characters who had lines and a little bit of development and who didn't just show up and got killed. Mm -hmm. And especially like with the Purge movies, which I'm covering at the time of this recording, there's just like, it's like 90 dudes and five girls, but it's just because like their bodies in the background. And it's just like, I feel like filmmakers are often like, well, just, just throw all these dudes over there. And, uh, yeah. So I, I feel like it would be more equitable if you just looked at characters.
0: Yeah. I think it's, it's something where more often men are treated as cannon fodder and that's something where the movie, um, Mad Max Fury road Mm -hmm. was something I really liked about it is that women got to be cannon fodder in that movie. Yeah. I thought that was so
1: fascinating, which again, and this is another comment that are, are on, uh, all these videos that are like, Feminists say that like it's sexist if more women die than men, and
0: that's not that's the not case. true. Dude, I, I feel like <laughs> feminists were very excited for Mad Max because it was like we're getting treated like men. We're just being tossed like tossed around and <laughs> killed, and like you know, we it, it truly felt like equal treatment because we were just <laughs> being used as like bodies.
1: Yeah, yeah, might as well do that. But then there's also a difference. Uh, because I got, and allow me to just wax a little bit about sure. comments on kill counts. Cause you know, a lot of the people viewing, listening to this have been part of that conversation. Yeah. So it's the saw three kill count or saw three D I'm sorry. I mentioned that the movie seems kind of angry towards women. And I got a lot of comments being like, what, just cause a lot of women died, uh, more, we- more men died in this movie than women. How could you say that? And again, it goes back to what we were saying, in the drawn-outness, the violence about it—quality It's it.
0: quality over quantity. Exactly. It's the way that they die. It's not how many of their yeah, gender. Because in Saw 3D,
1: you get Hoffman like stabbing a bunch of like nameless male cops in the throat. Right. But when it comes to Jill Tuck, a substantial character yeah. with a personality, he's banging her head against a desk, calling her the c-word. That is a gendered That's, attack. Yeah, exactly. He's not—he's not taking uh, a male cop and while stabbing and being like. You fucking guy with your penis. Like, that would be the equivalent to that. Yeah. You know, it's not just about the numbers, despite that being the conceit of the kill count. Yeah. And I'm sure that uh, you may already be th- be thinking of counterexamples. Absolutely. Especially if, like, if you don't necessarily agree with the stuff we're talking about. But I would guess that a lot of the counterexamples you're thinking of came out after the point of her writing this book. Because, like we've said, newer movies, it's not as uh, stark. Yeah,
0: you gotta keep remembering that this is written in 1992 and and before and 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 also
1: consider the fact that i haven't covered a lot of 80s slashers like i've done the friday series and the nightmare series but as far as like the other stuff that people would be mostly exposed to during that time. I haven't touched on a slumber party massacre, sorority house she massacre. She talks
0: a ton about slumber party massacre. Well, That one's
1: really interesting because it was written and directed that's by That's why women, she talks about it. Which is awesome. I can't wait to cover it eventually. Yeah, But yeah, so just keep in mind that, yeah, the the movies you see on the Kill Count aren't necessarily representative of uh, the genre as a whole, especially the genre at the time when Carol Clover is writing about
0: right. it. Right. And that's what, you know, that's again, that's what academic discourse is, is, you know, someone reads this essay and is like, well, I don't agree with this because this is this, this. There's all these examples I can think of. You're right, you're an essay, and that's fine. Fuck yeah, dude. You know what? This isn't, again, this is not the end all be all of criticism. Yeah. But I think she makes some cool points here.
1: So I think that at this point, we've covered our bases. I think we're good. So please, if you don't get it by now, <laughs> you just won't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now we can continue covering sure. this theory.
0: Clover's description and definition of the final girl. She survives. She finds the bodies of her friends and most fully comprehends the peril she's in. Everyone else in the movie, you know, maybe a few seconds before they die, they're like, oh, fuck. And then they get (laughs) murdered. But the final girl is living this entire movie, especially the last act of the movie, knowing that she's probably going to die. Yeah. like She can fully comprehend her peril. She's chased, wounded, rinse, repeat over and over and over again. And quote, she alone looks death in the face, but she alone also finds the strength to either stay the killer long enough to be rescued, ending A, or to kill him herself, ending B.
1: Yeah. And this is something that I came to call the final girl circuit in the final, uh, in the Friday films uh, yeah. <laughs> when I cover them on the Kill Count, because you see the same thing every time. She runs around and she sees all the bodies. You get a nice little review of everyone who's been killed. She often trips mm-hmm. or gets caught in the rain.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Sally from Texas Chainsaw, part one. We're going to use Texas Chainsaw a lot because she explicitly uses part one and part two as bookends to the era of slashers that she's talking about.
1: And part two came out in?
0: 86, I think. Okay. Mid-80s. Yeah. So Sally from uh, Texas Chainsaw, part one is an example of ending A. She defends herself until she's able to be saved by a truck driver. Stretch in part two is an example of ending B. She's the one who kills Chop Top at the end, and she swings the chainsaw around like Leatherface in Part One. Uh, Laurie Strode from Halloween is also a really good example of Part A, because Doctor Loomis shows up and And saves saves her. her. yeah. Yeah,
1: but she like holds off Michael long enough,
0: right? And that you know, the fact that she holds him off long enough, and Sally does too, is you know, Carol Clover says as the. Uh, you know, as the genre develops and years go by, final girls tend towards having endings where they rescue themselves. Nancy, she, she says right here, Fuck she yeah. says Nancy from Nightmare on Elm Street uh, is the grittiest final girl. That's like Nancy. a direct quote. She loves Nancy, <laughs> and, and she's she
1: mu- Nancy might be my favorite. Final I love
0: girl. her too. She says that she Clover thinks she's the most hard ass of all the final girls because she basically yeah she sets off this giant trap at the end and she's gritty and yeah
1: i wonder if also part of it is like something else you can read into it is like she stands up to her dad right before she like finally has the strength uh to face kruger and turn his turn her back to him and then like he's powerless so i wonder if that's like uh something you could read into or write an essay about how uh, i
0: think absolutely that's pretty loaded (laughs) um But regardless, so again, you know, yeah, they, even final girls who don't ultimately save themselves, they do fend the killer off long enough to be saved. And Clover says, regardless of the ending, Clover thinks who ultimately brings the killer down shouldn't be the point. That shouldn't be the main focus. Okay. It's about the quality of the final girl's fight and what about her specifically allows her to survive when no one else can. So she doesn't think that Nancy, even though she thinks she's the grittiest, she doesn't think she's Better necessarily than someone like Sally or Lori, you know, Mm -hmm. that's not what matters to her. Uh,
1: I do find it interesting, though, that in one counterpoint to the idea that as uh, time goes on, more often the final girl will rescue herself instead of uh, just like staying alive long enough to be rescued. Is It's kind of the opposite in the Friday the 13th series, which I'm going to be drawing a lot from just because I think that was the most explicit series I've covered with the final girl trope in it. Sure. Uh, Because it's like just the most basic slashers, which is what this comes from. And that's
0: the big franchise I'm the least familiar with, so that'll be helpful.
1: So uh, yeah, apologies to you for that. But uh, the first three films have a final girl who is your standard typical she winds up by herself at the end and she like kills the kills Jason or Pamela, whatever. And then after that, like in part four, the final girl has Tommy as a younger brother. Part five, uh, Pam has another kid running around with her, a male kid. Uh, part six, Tommy is more of like the final boy, but he has a final girl with him. And then from that point on, there's always like a final couple who survives. Mm-hmm. It's like a final girl and a guy. So I find that interesting that, uh, as that series progressed, Instead of uh, having a final girl who became more more independent, I guess it became uh, she became kind of more reliant on her co star final boy.
0: What years was Friday the Thirteenth?
1: So, uh, like the first three were 1980, and then 81 and 83, or no, I'm sorry those 90, are the
0: first three. 80 80
1: 81 82 okay and then i think it was like 85
0: it's interesting because those <laughs> are getting towards the end of this oh, that's slasher true. movement and getting towards and this is another author we're gonna talk about and we could probably do a whole episode about robin wood and his book about oh shit what's it called Hollywood from Vietnam to Reagan. He okay. writes a lot about, um, I have printed out here his essay about horror in the 80s. Uh, he fucking hates the 1980s. <laughs> um, Robin Wood's book is interesting. But he, I think he would argue that the reason that that happens is because the 80s is when we start getting more reactionary politics, especially gender politics. Hmm. And those movies are moving out of that range of, you know, the book end of those slashers with final girls that save themselves. So that could be why. OK. I don't know.
1: Yeah, we don't say man, we're, we're just throwing we're shit just out there. Ta- we're just podcasting. It's just fun to think about shit <laughs> yeah, sometimes. It's fun
0: to just yeah. <laughs> okay, so yeah, it's about the quality of the final girl's fight. So she's established right away as the main character. She's a bookworm and either isn't sexually active or sexually available. She's obs- You mean
1: not sexually available?
0: She's either either isn't sexually active or sexually available. She's not either of those. Okay. So she, again, she uses the example of Stretch from Texas Chainsaw too, like she, I don't know, she seems like she could be sexually active maybe, but she turns down a what's-his-face for a date, uh, her coworker at the radio station.
1: Want coffee big state? Nope.
0: She's observant, sometimes paranoid, and extremely resourceful. She's also shown to be kind of boyish and often has a name that can be unisex, like Stretch Ripley is kind of unisex. She uses Lori as an example. I'm not sure if Lori's unisex, but I thought maybe it's a little less feminine than Lauren or Laura. Yeah. But she uses some examples of, I think like Stevie is another final girl. Can you think Hmm. of any?
1: Well, let me just run through Friday the 13th. Alice. Mm. Uh, Ginny. Not quite. But then you have Chris. Okay. Uh, uh, Trish, no. Is Chris Camp. the psychic? No, that's that's part seven, and that's Tina. Oh, that's way later. Okay. Yeah, it's way later. Uh, yeah, so maybe maybe not in Friday the Thirteenth.
0: Yes, I, I don't know how well that. I thought I'd put it in there, but I wasn't mm-hmm. sure how well that held up. I yeah. just thought it was an interesting, especially Ripley. You know,
1: Ripley is a good one. Yeah, because it's like Ripley yeah, is that a very
0: masculinized character. <laughs> yeah. Um, beyond slashers. Uh, just horror in general the protagonists and victims in horror are usually female so think back to king kong or creature from the black lagoon all those movies you think of the monster holding a beautiful woman that dynamic has always always been dracula dracula you always think of (laughs) like the classic monsters are always you know phantom of the opera
1: yeah dracula's never like stalking a A dude dude for (laughs) his final killer yeah exactly
0: (laughs) So why does the genre with an extensive history of female protagonists have such a majority male audience, uh, at least at the time of this writing? Many argue the audiences are so male, and this is the center of many other debates over whether or not horror is a harmful genre or is a sexist genre, is that this is because men identify with the killer. They identify with this violence against these female characters, and that's what's going on here, and that's why male audiences... That's why horror mostly has male audiences. This line of thinking argues that horror therefore encourages violence in males and victimization of women. This way of identifying with the killer essentially means that when women watch horror, they're uh, quote-unquote betraying their sex and also watching the films from a male point of view, because film is usually shot from the male point of view anyways. And it's where we get the idea of the male gaze, which is more just really complicated theory that we that's another day, probably another podcast. (laughs) But male gaze is essentially a pretty accepted uh, school of film theory that most cinema is shot through the the male gaze. It's men making movies. It's men writing movies. And so the camera operates as kind of a male point of view, especially especially when most characters main characters are male
1: yeah and just you know again this is something that a lot of you might bristle at the idea that like the male gaze isn't real but just just imagine and i mentioned this in the nightmare on elm street 2 kill count which i know is in your notes about how like normally when you see a a woman in a movie that's like undressing or the camera you know it lingers on her body Mm -hmm. It, it shows off her body in a way that it rarely does with men and that's why it's so like, when you're watching Nightmare on Elm Street 2, you're like, why do these shots seem so weird? Yes. Like, it just seems so unfamiliar so to have these close-up on his tighty mm-hmm. And But it's like, that's how, like, think of a, was it, I know what you did last summer, where there's just all these shots of Jennifer Love Hewitt undressing. Yeah. Just like, the camera's just hugging that body. And that's, that's, like, the default. That happens most of the time, probably because... They're men filmmaker, male filmmakers, right. and uh, they're like, This will get the male audience in right. these
0: seats. And that's not, you know, that's beyond opinion, really, especially, you know, pre 1992. Like, that's statistics. Movies <laughs> are being made by dudes and written by dudes. Like, that's just what Hollywood was. Yeah. And, you know, mostly still is. It's changing. But, you know, even just movies in general, your main characters are male and they have a female love interest. And so you're kind of watching the movie through the lens of, you're identifying with the main character, the male main character, having a female love interest. You're, like, looking at her.
1: And, like, wanting to to get her in the end. Right. You know, like, like success.
0: Right. You're not meant to watch the movie through the viewpoint of the female character, usually. Usually, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, again, that theory gets really complicated. <laughs> like, this is, like, you go to film school, you learn about this shit. Yeah. Yeah. But... Clover argues, why isn't anyone arguing the opposite? Why do we act like it's impossible for men to identify with women on screen? Critics of horror assume men automatically identify with the male killers because that's what happens in every other movie is men identify with men, but they don't even consider the possibility that men are identifying with the women in horror. These horror films are told from the women's perspective because they're the main character. Mm -hmm. They're not the killer. Clover argues that if a man sees a horror movie and wants to identify with a male character, he's pretty limited in his options. There's boring boyfriends that die right away, maybe some classmates, even a male rescuer who comes in near the end, but he usually gets killed. There's police dads. Come on, Dad, you can at least have her drive out to Cunningham Road and look for him. Megan, my deputy has more important things to do than to look for camp counselors with car trouble other authority figures, but they're portrayed as stupid or uncomprehending most of the time. Mm-hmm. Then there's the killer. We don't even see much of him right away because he's often saved for a reveal. But when we do see him, he's masked, he's deformed, he's gross. Yeah. He's not an aspirational figure.
1: Which, which is interesting again, because again, I'm thinking of the counterexample of those later Friday films and even like the later nightmare films. And as a series continues, you're less and less likely to care about these uh, one-time protagonists of the film that come in, and you know they're either going to die or that's going to be it for their movie. Even if they survive, they won't be in the next one. And so you begin to identify with the killer, with Jason, for because Freddy. Has and has kind
0: you, of an overarching story. And you you
1: start to root for them. But again, interestingly, that tends to happen after 1986, which Clover has put, again, as the, the end point kind of, of her yeah. discussion. So along with the final girl tending to have more of a uh, final partnership and with the audience more likely to identify with the killer just because the the rest of the characters are cannon fodder. I find it interesting that those two things, you know, by 1986, that's when they're starting to happen. Yeah. Whereas her her uh, study is looking at movies before that. Yeah. And again, like you said, that's like when you're starting to get reactionary. This is but, interesting. But still this is but, great,
0: but even even so, in those movies, if you're looking at those movies at a case by case basis, are you w- during the experience of watching the movie, are you still rooting for whoever the main character is by the end?
1: Uh, I'd say that by time you get to Friday the Thirteenth Part Eight, Jason takes Manhattan. No, you're you're, you're just for watching Jason, Jason kill yeah, people. Hundred percent. Okay, 100%. I think that's fair.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of later Nightmare movies, and I still think even though it maybe doesn't work great and you're like, I don't give a fuck about these characters. You're still rooting for what's his fucking daughter's name.
1: Oh, uh, fuck the Zane. Yeah. And Lisa the Zane, Z- Lisa Zane. You're still,
0: you're meant to be rooting for her. Yeah. That's and how I'd it's say, structured. I'd say
1: least. that one is like maybe the weakest, but before that, for sure. Uh, like alice Alice, you know you're you're supposed to be really be rooting, right as
0: even though we all love freddy krueger obviously there's so much freddy krueger shit on this set (laughs) now it's hilarious but you know the way that the movie's structured you're meant to be rooting Mm -hmm. and you're you're watching the movie through the perspective of alice i can't wait to cover
1: the night or i'm sorry the halloween movies Mm -hmm. uh because i'm curious to see those i think four five six cover uh like his niece so that is a, a female character to identify with throughout those movies even though by that point you're like i just want to see michael, I just kill see michael yeah <laughs>
0: <clears throat> um so then there's our final girl as the only other character of substance to identify with she's again introduced at the beginning so we immediately know to identify with her She's intelligent, and I think key is that she's the character that comes the closest to having the same understanding of the situation that the audience does. Mm-hmm. So she's the one who we feel the least compelled to yell through the screen at, you know? Yeah. She kind of comes the closest to having the audience's privileged point of view. She's, like, she gets the whole picture. Yeah. You know?
1: something Something's wrong here. There's right. danger about it. Like,
0: Nancy. <laughs> Nancy knows what's up. Mm-hmm. She's yelling at everyone else in the movie, like, we also want to yell at everyone else in the movie yeah she uh we cheer when she defeats the killer and feel horror when she finds her mutilated friends she's the hero and we're rooting for her at the end so you know regardless of it's still you know when you're watching these movies you're still having fun watching the killer kill everyone like okay the first nightmare movie it's still great to watch Freddy kill everyone and it's a like great <laughs> fun time but you still you know it's Fun to watch Nancy win in the end. You're still rooting for her and the ending, therefore, is a huge bummer, you know? Yeah. The, like, weird cop-out. like
1: weird ending. That's
0: why that ending is so frustrating because you just (laughs) want her to win, you know? (laughs) So you're rooting for her. You're really, like, viewing this world through her. So at this point, you know, this idea of POV and viewing the movie through the final girl, many may be wondering, what's with all the POV shots in Slashers then? And, you know, famously, Halloween, we're put in the mask of the killer and we're forced to identify with him. And mm-hmm. That happens a lot in in horror. Psycho does it. Black Christmas. Black Christmas. The
1: first Friday, the 13th. Yeah. And the second one.
0: Mm-hmm. This is another huge point that critics of horror like to bring up. You know, these movies encourage violence because we as an audience are encouraged to empathize with the killer. Clover brings up the fact that still in the end, we are inarguably aligned with the final girl. These POV shots often serve as a way to keep the killer's identity a surprise. They're just like a filmmaking method to make the reveal of who the killer is shocking. I think, you know, one of the best examples is Pamela Voorhees. Exactly. Yeah. As um,
1: unlikely as it may be. Right, it's, exactly. It's so funny but when you compare that's why like... it's such a
0: great surprise <laughs> yeah. and why the POV works. And, I, uh, you know, another great reveal is the... the POV of Michael Myers is you don't realize at first he's a kid.
1: Yeah. It's and it's easy to forget. It's
0: it's so easy to forget that you're not supposed to know that. Yeah,
1: because now when we watch it's like, oh, this is when he's a kid and he kills his sister. But like when you when audiences first watch that, they didn't know that.
0: And it's so dark Mm -hmm. when you realize that yeah, you've been behind the mask of this little boy the entire time. Yeah. So I think, you know, it probably functions more as just a filmmaking method of, oh, it's a surprise kind of reveal. She also mentions that if you're using this line of logic, that POV automatically equals identification, that it's insane to think that the POV shots in Jaws means that you're (laughs) supposed to be the shark the whole time, or that the POV shots in the birds means that you're supposed to root for the birds. Like that's, you know what? That line of reasoning starts to fall apart when you look at other horrors.
1: I movies. root for the birds. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Clover is very good, by the way, at addressing counterpoints. Like she, she knows as she's writing what people are probably thinking as she's laying out her points, and she's very good at addressing.
1: I think that, in general, uh, that is one of the best things you can possibly do. Just in anything, yeah. I always, uh, I always do that method. Like even when I'm explaining changes to the channel, I'm always like, I know what you're thinking, da 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 da, da and then address it. You like if if you can think about what someone may have uh, the argument someone may have against what you're saying, address it. Yeah, and it's also a good it's way good to essay
0: writing. It, yeah, it's a good way to like <laughs> strengthen your
1: argument yeah. because if you can't come up with a good response to that, yeah, maybe rethink what you're saying. You know,
0: yeah. She's also really good, too, at like she acknowledges so many times in this essay that she's like, again, this is me trying to process this idea that I have and certain things, you know, they don't quite add up. And it's fine to have questions about this. Specifically, she has a whole section of this essay dedicated to like, well, what is happening when women watch these movies? Because this whole essay kind of discounts that experience. And she's like, you know, it would require just a whole other analysis but that'll make more sense once I get more into this other stuff. It's going to get weird, by the way.
1: Oh, it gets pretty weird because it's academia. Aca- academia, <laughs> academia gets fucking
0: weird, if man. If you think academia is boring, <laughs> underneath the layer of boringness is so much wild shit that when you actually start to dissect it, it's like, oh, man, so much weird good stuff. I think that's why I liked my horror theory class so much is because it's like it's just wild. I yeah. love it. I love it so much. So, at this point, you may also be wondering why aren't there more female killers then? And why aren't there more Final Boys? At first, that answer seems simple. Just, you know, even the straight up pretty obvious subtext that the slasher's method of killing is often really phallic and really (laughs) sexually symbolic and therefore kind of requires the killer to present as male. So, if you had any doubts about that, the famous scene in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 I think is the best like you can't not analyze that scene <laughs> as chainsaw equals dick do you want to kind of explain
1: yeah and you've seen the movie more recently I watched than it I have. like
0: while I was researching this yeah, yeah.
1: and it, for me it's been a long time but I did use the clip in a kill count probably for leprechaun 3 because the actress who plays stretch is the chicken leprechaun 3 who gets blown she's up.
0: great I really like her yeah
1: she's awesome but in that scene in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which is near the end.
0: No, it's near the beginning, actually. Oh
1: wow. Well she's confronted by Leatherface.
0: It's when they first get into the radio station kind okay. of. Okay,
1: and he goes to kill her with his chainsaw, but then he ends up very uh in a very sexually confused sort of way, like putting the chainsaw up against her, her yeah. crotch.
0: How good are you? <laughs> Huh? So, yeah, this super sexualized phallic violence. You know, a knife is very phallic. Machete. Machete. It's all these phallic symbols. It could, you know, be read as an on screen representation of man on woman sexual violence or just pure distilled rage against the feminine you know, man-on-woman violence. And that's how many people, again, read horror. But not Clover. Not Clover. This argument Clover believes breaks down once you start examining the masculinity and femininity of the killer and the final girl. The killer's masculinity is extremely compromised. If this was supposed to be, if horror, or the slasher at least, is supposed to be a representation of pure man-on-woman violence, you know, this anger between the sexes, the killer's masculinity wouldn't be so gray Mm -hmm. and again so compromised you've got norman bates with quote you know the mother half of his mind that's Mm -hmm. how it's described in the movie leatherface's impotent chainsaw jason's mommy issues and his eternal boyhood um michael myers seems trapped in eternal boyhood even though he's a you know he's a man in the movie but The way everyone talks about him, you know, the the famous speech Dr. Loomis gives where he describes meeting Michael Myers, he's describing him as a child. Mm -hmm. He's always kind of talked about in that movie as a kid. I don't think anyone's ever calling him a man or addressing him as a man. They're always talking about this, like, haunted child that they've met. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil.
1: Trying to think of, so if we expand like past the 86 kind of bookmark here, I'm trying to think of like maybe Victor Crowley from the hatchet movies. He's, uh, he's much more masculine. He has like daddy issues, which is interesting. Uh,
0: yeah that's still repre- you know it's it's like a weird it's a family fixation and mm-hmm. it yeah kind of I'm trying to. Th- uh,
1: chucky is never really uh like upset in a gender way but like he's in a doll's body I was going to say he's <laughs> in
0: a doll body and he
1: that's very. I think one of
0: the issues he has with it is he doesn't have a dick, you know.
1: Well, no, he says he's anatomically oh, correct that's and bride right, of chunky. Oh yeah, <laughs>
0: but he's not a man. He's like a, he's in <laughs> a little kid doll body.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm trying. To, I'm
0: even like, like looking at her. What our... about
1: like Freddie? He seems okay,
0: but he also there's the weird thing of him. He you know, I implied guess, child molester. Yeah, yeah. And he, has he like kills like kids. Sexual issue. Yeah, yeah instead of like it's,
1: he's not a he's not a man killing other men. He's killing kids. Right. Until There's he's supernatural. There's weird uh, stuff. The there. xenomorph is all kinds of like it's phallic.
0: Oh, the xenomorph it, is in this <laughs> essay a lot. Especially xenomorph the one in the, is
1: like the frankenfurter of horror creatures. I mean, it's like the xenomorph
0: both. is a big dick. Yeah, and, but it's
1: also like kind of sexy. And, it, like, it, facehuggers yeah. look like vaginas. Yeah.
0: And, you know, this in Aliens, mm-hmm. she she even mentions Aliens in this essay. I don't have it in here. But she mentions that Aliens, the most horrifying monster of all, is the egg-laying, you know. Oh,
1: like the, the throat rape? The mo- of- yeah. yeah. It's yeah, like yeah. this
0: mother figure, this horrifying mother. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: but also, like, yeah, like, men's fear of of rape. Yeah. With, like, the facehugger. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah horror monsters are all weird sexuality which if you want to read it (laughs) hellraiser oh my god if you want to read an even you know a really comprehensive uh book or you know series of essays about that kind of representation like what you know monsters representing repressed weird sexuality again robin wood's book Mm -hmm. and his essays um you know i have the american nightmare horror in the 70s and horror in the 80s he talks about how horror is about this like representation of repression and sexuality that our culture finds terrifying mm. and therefore has to present itself as monsters. Even going back to the universal monsters are like uh, yeah, the creature from the black lagoon. I think that's why shape of water is like kind of, a Black Lagoon type creature because that creature has always represented weird sexuality. Yeah. Anyway, I don't want to get too off track. <laughs> but yeah, so basically all the killers and slashers are weird like man babies kind of. <laughs> oh wait, no, there's, okay, so there's also the trope. I, I do want to address it because it's there. The trope of the killer as a crossdresser or a transgender person, which I don't feel qualified to talk about in this episode. I think could be its own episode. But basically, the the killer's male self is extremely feminized or in some way compromised. That's her, you know, idea of what
1: the Buffalo are. Bill.
0: Sure. And yeah. that came
1: out probably after she wrote this. Oh that was
0: yeah, nineteen ninety one. Or no. So yeah, it would have been around the same time. Yeah. Yeah yeah. On the other hand you have the masculinity of the final girl. She's masculine in the ways we've discussed before, but she's also masculine in that she assumes a role on screen typically reserved for men. She's the active participant in the film and goes looking for the killer. Clover cites this quote from John Carpenter after Halloween was criticized for condemning female sexuality. So Halloween gets a lot of uh, flack for, you know, it, it kills characters after they have sex. And a lot of people interpret that as it's murdering women for having sex and it's punishing, you know, the bad girls and rewarding the good girl who doesn't have sex and she gets to survive. But this is what John Carpenter says. They, the critics, completely missed the boat there, I think. Because if you turn it around, the one girl who was the most sexually uptight just keeps stabbing this guy with a long knife. She's the most sexually frustrated. She's the one that killed him. Not because she's a virgin, but because of all that repressed energy starts coming out. She uses all those phallic symbols on the guy. She and the killer have a certain link. Sexual repression. So even John Carpenter's, like... Yeah, it's all (laughs) fallacies. In case you're thinking, nah, it's everyone reading into it. John Carpenter is like, no.
1: Yeah, no, the knife's a dick. The knife's
0: a dick. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a thing. I think at this point, it's a thing that horror people were all on board with, that weapons are dicks. Weapons are dicks, yeah. They're dick stand-ins.
1: And if you think that's weird.
0: Yeah, so, okay, (laughs) buckle up, because this is when this essay gets real weird and it's stuff that all makes sense once you kind of mull it over well, yeah
1: i think this is also one of these types of things where you know if you want to look at this and be like fucking academics like they just overthink things and get weird with it
0: sure that's an interpretation that's sure because yeah this again if you so if you you know either you're not in college yet or if you know you didn't take many college courses. Or you didn't
1: go to college. Or you didn't, yeah, or you didn't go
0: to college and you don't have a ton of experience with this kind of academia. This might be like, what the fuck?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Academia gets weird, man. It
0: does. It gets very weird.
1: But you know what? Sometimes that weirdness stumbles onto something good.
0: Yeah. I just think it's a good way of (laughs) opening your brain up to think about stuff in different ways. Yeah. So here we go. Let's get weird. (laughs) Let's
1: get into it. Because brains are messy, man.
0: Yeah. So we're just trying to explain that mess. The... (laughs) Final girl at the end, Clover argues, essentially goes through a kind of puberty and gains a phallus by castrating the killer when she gets the weapon. <laughs> I have caps, this is when things get weird. <laughs> <laughs> this kind of symbolism of the final girl basically gaining a dick and entering adulthood is an explicit contrast to the killer who is de-penised after living his entire life as a man-baby in a weird <laughs> psychosexual relationship with his mom or family. Yeah. Yeah. We good? Should I just keep going? <laughs> just keep going. <laughs> All right. Let's dig in. The killer's ending is tragic in that he essentially becomes feminized via castration. And the final girl is victorious because she fully realizes her masculinity after acquiring a phallus. Nice. It's not, and again, I want to stress, because I don't know if she makes this explicitly clear, but it's this is at least how I interpret her her writing. Mm-hmm. It's not that the killer becomes a woman. Yeah. It's that he remains a child. Yeah. He remains a man baby because he never gets his adult dick. <laughs> um, and it's the reason I think that this is the case is because we typically gender young kids as feminine, boys and girls. This or might, at least
1: we used to. We used
0: to. We don't, it, this is changing a lot. Um, but before kids came of age, especially before the...
1: Like World War One. World
0: War One before the time that uh teenagers were a thing. We yeah. didn't always have teenagers. Teenagers are a recent thing. Yeah. I would say mid century is when we start calling, you know, kids in their teens teenagers. Yeah,
1: before it was just you were a kid and, and then, then you were, were an, an adult. adult and
0: you were ready to go to work.
1: And that was usually at like 15? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so at fifteen, especially if you were male, it was like you're an adult you're now. You're an adult
0: now, yeah. So so uh, think on
1: that, all you fucking 15-year-olds who are playing video <laughs> games. You would have had to work in the mines. Yeah. Go to war.
0: But before, you know, before you, quote, unquote, become a man in that time when mm-hmm. you're a kid, you know, kids are just kind of genderless. They're they're kids.
1: They're just kids. They're just
0: kids. And so up until pretty recent history, and we're talking starting from, like, the 1500s-ish up until the early 1900s, young boys wore dresses. Mm-hmm. Um. hmm Pink was a masculine color and blue was a feminine color because the Virgin Mary, I think. But more importantly, young boys all wore dresses. And the ceremonial shift from a boy wearing a dress to wearing pants was called preaching. And Speaking. I actually, when I was looking this up, and I'll link this in this the, I'll link this in the description. But uh, I found a picture of F. D. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt wearing a little dress, and he has long hair and a feathered cap. And I found one of Ernest Hemingway too, Yeah. the manliest <laughs> man of <laughs> like all the time. Manliest man. There's a picture of him, and he's smiling, and he's got like blonde curly hair, and he's in a little white dress. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, we we have this idea of young kids being feminine, mm-hmm. which again is not. To us, maybe it sounds weird. Yeah. But... But it was like, yeah, the, the separation was like so.
1: men, women, women, and children. Women, yes. Yeah. Exactly. Children were kind of grouped with women.
0: That's yeah. A- so keep that in your pocket because that will come back later. Kids, feminine. Or, you know, they're not masculine. Not masculine. Right. They're, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, another reason that Clover argues contributes to the phenomenon of primarily female victim is the history of established language in film. Like we discussed earlier, the male gaze is an assumed thing, and that gaze knows how to shoot women and fetishize them in a way that it doesn't know how to shoot men. So, for example, you know, so film sees men and women differently, sees men, quote-unquote, sees them differently. Men get to display anger and force on film, crying, screaming, begging, fainting, whatever that's reserved for women. Mm -hmm. And I think a movie that proves that so well and makes you realize how, like, ingrained that language is, that cinematic language is, is Nightmare on Elm Street Mm 2. Because when you see a man acting exactly like a woman would and honestly being realistically (laughs) terrified and screaming, it seems so weird to us, and it seems immediately feminine. Everyone says he screams like a girl. Yeah.
1: You've got the body. I've got the brain.
0: So all this kind of, it it comes around to Clover's main argument for why the final girl is a thing. The final girl is an acceptable stand-in for a young adolescent male. So Hank, stay with me. She's feminine enough to scream and cry and be scared in a way that is thrilling to identify with. So in horror, it's more fun to feel vulnerable alongside with the characters. I think horror, you feel less vulnerable less scared if the final girl is instead like a strong dude it's a different dynamic but she's masculine enough for a male audience to feel good about identifying with
1: yeah right it's like oh she's she's not like those other girls she's not <laughs> yeah exactly
0: she's not you know a, a dumb i don't know bimbo
1: <laughs> yeah sure
0: um
1: yeah she's not hysterical she's strong and right. and resourceful
0: so, yeah so she's a good middle ground she's a character where it's like okay masculine enough for for dudes to feel comfortable enough identifying with but feminine and vulnerable enough to make it thrilling to make it exciting mm-hmm. right and again that's why it's important to remember this like feminine equivalence with like younger kids and like kids pre-puberty mm-hmm. and like boys in dresses it's, it's like yeah a girl could be a stand-in for an adolescent teen boy yeah you know,
1: which is a large portion of the horror audience.
0: She does. Yeah, she does address the dilemma. This puts female viewers in and doesn't have a definitive answer. She kind of questions, you know, even whether it's kind of fucked up that men have to make a female <laughs> character masculine and able to empathize with her while women are just expected to empathize with male characters, period. Yeah. Um, again, this this is changing. Mm-hmm. 1992 when this is written. <laughs> I don't want to hear it <laughs> <laughs> then she wonders okay taking all of this into account can't this phenomenon of a female main character also just be explained away by the enjoyment of the taboo of a male viewer experiencing femaleness and she thinks that that's fair because horror is all about taboo so it makes sense that it's also a genre where a man can step into a woman's shoes and play around a little bit with yeah. with gender it adds to the thrill of a horror movie that makes sense yeah this play with gender and the uncertainty it provides is also demonstrated in the identity of the killer again we often have reveals that the killer is actually a woman when you've assumed it's a man like Pamela Voorhees or Norm Bates for vice versa I think horror has got to be the genre that most fucks around with gender yeah in the I mean like the, the explicit way that it does sometimes in the not nice way it does but it does hmm it's like the genre I think where you can play around with that the most.
1: It's yeah, it's the genre most linked to sex.
0: Absolutely. Even
1: romantic comedies aren't as much about like romance movies aren't as much about sex as horror movies are.
0: Yeah, and horror's like sexual anxiety. Yeah. And repressed sexual urges. Yeah. There's... Especially in America where we repress sex and we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And we have this weird like Yeah, we're obsessed with sex, but we repress it. And that's why I think it just comes out, you know, in horror. And again, this is a Robin Wood argument where, like, sex is so, you know, um, intertwined with horror because it's, like, a repressed thing that to American culture is, like... A nightmare, like weird, like sexuality that isn't the norm, like mm-hmm. you know, white bread standard, like acceptable norm for American culture is this nightmare. Yeah, that haunts us. Like we're so afraid of sex in America that that's why horror is so sexual.
1: And that's another thing that's changing for sure. Absolutely, we're not nearly as repressed about it as when these movies. Oh were my coming god, out the yeah, 90- yeah, Jesus, <laughs> yeah. But we still have uh, just kind of a weird relationship with it, we compared to like do. you know, compared to like maybe Europe. Uh, or even other non-Western societies where, Mm -hmm. like, you know— the boob isn't as sexualized in other cultures as with yeah. us, and that's why we have debates over whether or not you can breastfeed in public. Is because yeah. we're just so we're sexually so charged.
0: Afraid of boobs, it's, it's like, crazy. Oh, but but how can I restrain yeah. myself if I see a tit? I just always think it's so funny when you're live streaming and you're editing and you're like, <laughs> you accidentally scrub past a boob and you're like, fuck. The, and it's crazy that that B- could better get
1: scrub to the decapitation. Yeah. You, oh yeah.
0: Let's get yeah. Let's get to this dude getting his like legs ripped off (laughs) it's nuts like we're so afraid of sex and that like horror just takes that and runs with it you know yeah because it is our collective nightmare in this country (laughs) for sure especially sex that is weird and makes us uncomfortable that Mm -hmm. isn't like stuff we approve of horror is constantly messing around with gender boundaries and it constantly reinforces that gender doesn't allow us to predict behavior And Carol argues positions gender as theater and extremely fluid. So again, this, the reveal, like Pamela Voorhees, we use her as an example. Like she's a great example. We can't, you know, this behavior, we don't predict that that's a middle aged woman by the end. (laughs) Yeah. And that, you know, it makes, you know, it it kind of presents her gender as weirdly fluid because she acts in the way that's like the opposite of what we would expect for her gender. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, horror uses gender as theater. and, this flexibility of gender that horror consistently offers is another reason why the predominantly male audience feels comfortable assuming the perspective of the final girl, because horror has this precedent of setting up a space where it's fine to kind of mess around with gender in that way. So it's, you know, that's why Carol loves horror so much and why she thinks it's so fascinating is because it's a genre that sets this precedent for it's okay for a man to identify with a female character. And no one questions it, Mm -hmm. you know. In Clover's opinion, absolute fear is still gendered feminine, but horror's unique portrayal of its female main character suggests a shift towards self-rescue and determination not being strictly masculine anymore. So it's kind of a double-edged sword because we're still in this space where fear on screen, um, at least, you know, the fear that is most exciting to experience as a horror viewer is kind of a feminine... Experience like we still, it's more thrilling to see women in danger than men. Yeah, again, something that's changing.
1: Yeah, I'm just trying to think of uh, so again, there's probably tons of counterexamples, but my mind is just going to some the early Friday the 13th movies and just like, yeah, Kevin Bacon, uh he doesn't he doesn't have time to be afraid he gets blood dripped on him and then he's like what and then killed whereas his girlfriend marcy i think her name is uh goes to the bathroom in her underwear yeah and long shots of her in her underwear and then when she's attacked she survives for long enough to like get the close-ups of her screaming and like Mm -hmm. terrified acts in her face uh same thing with like no no no, that's my but yeah it's
0: something where you more often you're seeing women react like that yeah you don't often have men screaming and and begging for their lives a horror completely upends the trope of only men having active roles and propelling the story forward the woman becomes the investigator and the spectator of the action so again that's different now but it's cool to look back and see how horror horror is the genre where we get more of that earlier like horror is kind of ahead of every other genre in terms of representation and you know i think
1: horror is constantly expanding the boundaries of what's acceptable to do in a movie that it'll push them out a little bit and then more mainstream movies will adapt that and be like okay this is our new boundary we can go that far and then horror will be like yeah but let's push it a little bit further now Mm -hmm. and it's just that back and forth
0: yeah clover's closing paragraph is this and i think it pretty neatly sums up her attitude towards the the slasher One is deeply reluctant to make progressive claims for a body of cinema that uh, is as spectacularly nasty toward women as the slasher film is, but the fact is that the slasher does, in its own perverse way and for better or for worse, constitute a visible adjustment in the terms of gender representations. That is an adjustment largely on the male side, appearing at the furthest possible remove from the quarters of theory and showing signs of trickling upward— is of no small interest in the study of popular culture. So basically what she means is it's super cool that this evolution is happening with male audiences, male filmmakers, male writers. Like these are movies made by men for men mostly. Mm-hmm. Again, that's generalizing, but when you look at the numbers, that's what that's what's going on,
1: especially back then.
0: Especially back then. But there's this weird uh, shift in attitude towards gender and and representation on film coming from men who don't necessarily, they don't have an imperative to, it's just, it represents a genuine shift in how men see the world and see women and and people of other genders. And she also thinks it's fascinating that it's happening in these movies that these aren't art films, these aren't trying to be... um, Maybe they're not actively trying to be progressive or, or push boundaries in that way, but they are. Yeah. And that represents it's like this is actually becoming ingrained in society is this progression of how we view each other. If it's not
1: consciously happening. Exactly. This mm-hmm. isn't
0: happening in like high art films or um, this isn't like, you know, this isn't being influenced by like theory and stuff. It just <laughs> is like naturally happening. happening. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that's why she thinks it's a tragedy that people would look over what many would consider low cinema. Yep. That's why she loves slashers is because that kind of stuff's happening there. And I think, you know, she really did a service to that genre. I think the way we look at those movies would be really different if she didn't write this book.
1: Yeah. I Man, I miss covering slashers on my channel.
0: She, it, she makes me appreciate slashers a lot more.
1: Yeah. Slashers are fun. They're simple. And it's been so long since I've I've covered them.
0: Yeah. I hope that this was interesting. hmm I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, I mean, it's academia. It gets a little, yeah, you know. Yeah, it's academic
1: as fuck, but. I mean, yeah. It, I try,
0: I really tried hard to cliff notes this because, you know, a lot of the language she uses, you have to already be familiar with a lot of film theory to know what the fuck she's talking about. I think it's hard to sit and read this book if.
1: Yeah, you if know? you're not familiar with those terms and yeah. just uh, shorthand. Uh, I think that for anyone who is reluctant to uh, get into the academic side of things, listen, if you're listening to this or watching this or you're a fan of this channel, you're probably pretty into horror movies. And I know I was when I was younger. I was fucking obsessed with them, and I still am. And I think that if you if you have that kind of passion for something – and you already devote that much time and energy towards it, it's worth considering uh, just thinking a little bit more deeply about it. Like, you can can always turn your brain off and enjoy these movies, and that's fine, and I do that, and everyone does that. It's something fun to do. But also, occasionally, maybe just allow yourself to think a little bit deeper about, like, what's going on underneath all these movies. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, even if it's not intentional, like you were saying at the end there, there's there's these collective ideas that go into the creation of these horror movies that's worth considering at least and yeah maybe you'll agree with some of it. some of it maybe you won't maybe you'll think some of his fucking horse pucky yeah. that's a term right sure <laughs> and uh, yeah like there is was okay. some
0: the, like one thing i can think of and you know I, like i said many times i fucking love this book i love this essay i loved it even more after having to analyze it so closely one thing in it i super disagree with she talks about ripley from alien and she argues that ripley isn't a great feminist development she's like if if you know we're going with this theory that this final girl is just kind of a male stand-in she's more of like a male wish fantasy in, a, in an acceptable way for men to feel fear and she isn't necessarily like a intentional like girl power movie mm. which you know you can't take Ripley away from me. (laughs) Ripley for me is very empowering. So that's something where I'm like, I disagree. Yeah. You know, but that's, you know, that's fine. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, so there's a, I am going to link to a piece. This is in medium about how this theory holds up with more modern examples. And this has a pretty uh, thorough list of more modern movies. I think she talks a lot about Hush, uh, other movies that are, yeah, pretty new. Then there's also a, piece from i think the film journal off screen about european horror because she doesn't talk about european horror at all so if Mm -hmm. you're familiar with european horror you might be you might have just been screaming at us the whole time yeah (laughs) because this is very like a merocentric is that a word
1: Uh, it is now
0: okay (laughs) (laughs) but this piece talks about how european horror is super different in terms of subtext and female characters especially since europe's like you know uh Europe and the relationship with sexuality is extremely different than America's. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot, you know, the subtext is different in European horror. The female characters are different. And so this article writes a lot about movies that I've never seen. And I think if you are interested in that, this is really good and really uh, concise. And they all also link to the piece about little boys wearing dresses. That's fun. Yeah. With really cool pictures. All
1: yeah. right. So That's
0: that. Yeah, I hope that that was interesting. I know, uh, yeah,
1: shed some light, shed a lot of light on what uh before now on this channel has just been referred to offhandedly as Final Girl as mm-hmm. an accepted trope. Yeah, Final we just,
0: Girl. I got my Final Girl shirt on.
1: Nice. We just dug yeah, down. Yeah, you see it.
0: Final Girl like we were at Texas Frightmare and I, there was a bunch of other Final Girl merch like different you know stuff yeah. that says Final Girl on it like she you know and she's a, a thing that a lot of women feel empowered by and so I was like let's just dive into it
1: yeah real quick before we go i know this is already a long episode but we would be remiss if we didn't thank the people who have sent stuff to our p.o box please feel free to do so anything you want to send us any fan stuff any uh i don't know goodies uh we'll we'll have the address in the description uh i don't feel like reading it off on on camera it's in the description. Well, I'll you know put what? up a graphic. Yeah, it's 13535 Ventura Boulevard, Sweet C, PMB 423, Sherman Oaks, California, 91423. That's for all our audio listeners. There it is. So, thank you, Raven, who sent us a lovely note on this fucking uh, very bright coral card that she apologizes for. But you know what, Raven? I love it. Thank you. I know. You. I thought it was cute. Yeah, it's very good. It's just a very nice letter about uh you know how it's it's helped uh, I mean she's always been a hor- huge horror fan and it's uh she appreciates the breaking down and analysis of them so Yay. we like that too also uh fellow horror creators neon Brainiacs. Neon Brainiacs. yeah new episodes available on iTunes every Wednesday so uh, it's an 80s horror podcast if you if you want to get more deep into the 80s horror that uh, that's
0: also slashers there's I'm also sure slashers
1: talk- a lot of stuff that this Essay Absolutely. and episode we'll probably talk about. Uh, they also sent us some DVDs, Slaughter Drive, which is which is yeah. fun. And are these are these movies that they made?
0: I believe so. I
1: believe it is. So that's fun. That's amazing. And, uh, BPO Films Mixtape Volume Volume One looks like a bunch of uh, a collection of short films. So uh, that's awesome. Haven't had the time to check these out yet, but I I hope Plan to. On it. So thank you, uh, Neon Brainiacs. We also got. A whole bunch of these very cool pins from the Friday the Thirteenth Killer Puzzle oh game. Oh man,
0: I which, got so excited! With
1: as you know, we level. are we are featured in. Yay! Yeah. We did a single live stream of us playing that game, but that was before our characters were in it. Yeah. So you know what? We're probably gonna have to do another one where we reach we the level. Definitely
0: will. I think we're on level eleven.
1: Something like that. We'll That's we'll a far re- way. reach the level where we get to kill ourselves. And, yes. <laughs> and uh, while we're doing that, we can maybe do a giveaway yeah of all these extra pins that they gave we're us we're keeping some we're yeah we're keeping one set but <laughs> like
0: we can't give them all away
1: they're very awesome i they're love nice the pamela head too. yeah they're very good pins as people yeah. who make pins finally last but not least
0: <laughs> if oh, you I are familiar that. with
1: sleepaway camp it's one of my favorite slashers one of my favorite horror movies
0: oh we're obsessed with sleepaway camp mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we got this in the mail yeah um Do you want to explain?
1: Sure, Uh, Karen Fields, who plays Judy, the uh, like bitchy character in that movie. Yeah, Uh, you may, if you're familiar with my Monster Palooza video from 2017, we had a happenstance run into her and yes, just we met uh, her and her daughter. Mm-hmm, impromptu interview with her. She was very sweet. Her and her daughter Izzy were both very nice. And her daughter Izzy is actually studying to be a makeup artist. She
0: guys she just got in she's in the Tom Savini program. That's right, like she's, holy she's shit. studying under
1: Tom Savini yeah. to make horror movie makeup, which is amazing. Amazing. And so Izzy reached out to us. Her her mother Karen was uh, willing to sign a curling iron for us oh my god with the quote on it a real carpenter's dream yep and uh i'm just very excited to have this this autographed curling iron if
0: you've seen sleepaway camp you know why you you know why it's a thing yeah Yeah, so so thank you both so much thank you this was very exciting to get in the mail yeah so
1: again (laughs) if you feel like sending anything to us physical hit us up there if it if you're uh the thing you want to send is more digital go ahead and email us at deadmeatpod at gmail.com chelsea's always checking that email mm-hmm. and responding uh to those mm-hmm. you can find the dead meat channel on youtube uh dead meat it's there it's something with the algorithm lately man it's been crazy i think
0: just... kids are out of school i think kids are out of school <laughs> and they found
1: this channel and so it's blowing we up I
0: appreciate it a lot
1: thank you very much i'm so
0: scared that you have a bunch of new subscribers, and this will be the first podcast episode, and they'll be like, what the fuck? Yeah, is that's this right. Shit? If you're new
1: to the channel, welcome. I'm if you've out made of it this s- far. I'm out of
0: school for summer. Fuck this shit. I don't want school. <laughs> we should have said that up
1: top. Like, hey, we know you're out of school, but here's some learning anyway. Yeah, that's I think it's fun that's learning. Fun. It's fun to learn. We talked
0: so much about dicks.
1: You're gonna miss when all you had to do was learn. You're gonna miss it so much. All right? Because that's way better than having to work <laughs> or else you starve. Get ready for adulthood. Uh, also, you can find me on social media at Dead Meat James. That's on Twitter and Instagram. Chelsea.
0: I'm at Carebeck. That's C-A-R-E-B-E-C-C on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want merch, like the final girl's shirt.
1: Mm-hmm. And our own pins. and Yeah,
0: that's uh, deadmeatstore.com
1: that's right and also be sure to rate and review this podcast on whatever you're listening to especially Please. if it it's helps iTunes a lot. it does I recently discovered that I, you can read more than just three reviews if you actually have iTunes I didn't have iTunes I'm, I'm not an Apple person so every time I would go to our review our, our podcast on the iTunes website mm-hmm. I would just see the same three reviews and be like what the fuck no one's leaving any yeah, reviews but
0: there's actually a ton
1: there's like so many really there's hundreds so them. I spent like a good couple hours the other day just going through and reading them all and they're all so pleasant i think we have a solid five stars on there don't fuck that up please don't fuck that up. please don't, up. don't fuck that i will up. say the
0: reviews that haunt me the most are the three and four stars where it's like i'd rather have you be like i fucking hate this thing
1: yeah but what? it's
0: like like force like what you know like what did it, it haunts me <laughs> like
1: <laughs> what could we have what done? did
0: we do to lose the one star <laughs> i feel like um do you remember that episode of Hey Arnold where Helga's sister gets like an A minus?
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's how That's I feel. Right. I forgot about Helga's perfect sister. <laughs> <laughs> Olga? Oh, God. Yeah.
0: Like I, that, that <laughs> minus is haunting me. <laughs> but they, yeah, we super appreciate it.
1: Yeah. So thank you very much. Thank yeah. you for listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be back uh, next week.
0: I hope so. I'm getting eye surgery tomorrow. I don't know how long it'll we take to recover. We don't know how. Yeah. Yeah. But we'll if see. we're doing episodes like this where they're not as edit heavy, that makes it easier for me. So chances are you will get an episode next week. Probably a movie we'll review. We'll see how much pain I'm in.
1: And it, it's, you know what? We haven't settled on a movie yet. If you want us to review a specific movie, let us know in the comments. We're open to suggestions. Yeah, we haven't. Because all either. our brains keep going to our fucking 90s and That's early 2000s movies. Because yeah. I'm looking for idle hands sometimes. But mm-hmm. uh, anyway. If you're still listening, thank you very much, and we'll see you on the next episode. Uh, until then, I'm James. I'm Chelsea. This has been the Dead Me Podcast. Play that music.